The scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord, always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be here with you this, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Um, I'm Jim Friedier. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the interim pastor here at Astoria Community Church. And uh, for the past, or pretty much for the entire summer, we've been going through the book of Philippians. And we're going to continue in this book today and with the hope and desire uh, to finish up this series, um, the beginning part of September before moving into something else. Now, I don't know where any of you were in 2020 before COVID arrived on the scene, but most of us had no idea what to expect or what lay ahead. None of us had ever lived through a pandemic and many people did not take it seriously, not realizing, most of them not realizing how infectious it was and how easily it was transmitted from person to person. We quickly learned, at least here in New York City, that, is it spread, that it spread rapidly and that it was quite detrimental to our physical bodies. You know, in the same way, a lack of peace or conflict in a church is just like a contagious disease. A church that lacks peace or harmony can be, devast can be devastating to the body of Christ. And like a disease, it tends to spread quickly and bring growing conflict and division within that body. And we've seen over the past couple months that throughout this letter that Paul has implied that he has hinted at that there may be conflict within this congregation, within the Philippian church, within the Philippian believers. And we know that because as you go back and hear some of the things he said, this is what he said in chapter 1. We know this is because he's constantly praying for and exhorting this congregation to peace. He says, uh, in chapter 1 he said, I prayed that, uh, for you to abound more and more in love, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, to stand firm in one spirit, striving together as, as, as one, in humility to value others above ourselves. To do everything without grumbling or arguing, he says in chapter 2. 
And then he finishes out chapter 2 with to, that we are to put Jesus' interests above our own. So throughout the book, he's been implying or hinting at that there may be some tension within these believers um, in Philippi. And then in chapter 4, he comes to this issue of peace. And he's going to dwell on that. And I want us to take some time today to look at three things in particular that Paul exhorts us to. He's going to exhort us to relational peace, personal peace, and worldly peace. And we're going to go through those today. In chapter 4, Paul lays out what the main issue or problem is in the church in Philippi. At least what seems to be the main issue. He says... I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sintishi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So we've seen first Paul addressed the big picture of unity and peace within this church in the early chapters of this book. And now he's going to turn and begin to address possibly the main cause of disunity, the main cause of a lack of peace among these believers in Philippi. He says, Yodi and Sintishi are struggling to reconcile. That is, they're struggling to have peace with one another. And these women had taken an active role in Paul's ministry. He said they labored with him side by side. They labored with him side by side with the gospel. And their names are written in the book of life. Look, Paul is saying that these women were instrumental in his ministry. They had a huge impact, not just in the church in Philippi, but maybe even within uh, the Grecan Mediterranean world. These women were uh, using their gifts to build up the church of Christ and yet now have come to a place of disagreement. They were partners in his ministry, and yet somehow that Paul doesn't say they had come into sharp disagreement with each other. They're not getting along, and Paul is concerned that this will cause big, big issues within this church. And as we've seen, it most likely had already begun to cause some issues of disagreements. As people have problems, as people struggle to reconcile or be at peace, it always ends up in a church causing cliques or groups uh, to separate out because we are sinful people and we tend to support or disagree with one over another. You know, I also find this section a little bit eye-opening and a little shocking, to be honest with you, because no one wants to be caught out publicly for their issues, and yet that is exactly what Paul does here. Now, could you imagine, put yourself in Yodi and Sintish's boots or their shoes or their sandals, right? They're sitting in church or in some setting uh, where this letter is being read out loud. Now, you have to understand in the early church when Paul would write a letter or one of the apostles would write a letter to the church, uh, that letter would come to the church and usually a leader in the church would take the letter and read it to the congregation, right? Because at that time, most people, maybe only 10 or 15 percent of the people in the Roman world could actually read. So the leader would read this letter. So these women most likely, and this is conjecture a little bit on my part, but most likely had no idea what was coming. The leader takes the letter, Paul's letter, and he reads it to the congregation. And my guess is, at least in our context, if that happened here, that, that woman, this woman would have been shocked, maybe even angry, and definitely embarrassed um, to be mentioned the way Paul has mentioned her here. But I think it's important, and this is the key for this, it's important not to put them in our context, it's to keep them in their context of when they lived. So what we see here is that 
when Paul named these women, in actuality, he's really showing his friendship, his love, and his concern for them. How do I know that? Because in Paul's day, you did not name your enemies in a polemical letter. When you wrote a letter to disagree or say you disagreed with somebody or you were upset with, with someone, you didn't usually name them in the letter. Because what you're saying by not naming them is, you're not worth my time, you're not worth my effort. Rather, Paul shows both of these women that he had deep respect for them, that he wasn't taking sides. I hope you notice that here. He doesn't say to, you, to Yodia, submit to your sister, Sentiche, she's right, you're wrong. No, we don't have that, any of that in the text. Paul simply says to both of these women, agree with one another in the Lord. Agree with one another in the Lord. Notice, did he say to them, think the same way? Have the same opinion? Not at all. He simply says, agree with one another in the Lord. It's clear also here, I want to make one note of this, is that this is not a doctrinal issue that's going on. These women aren't fighting over some doctrine. And we know that because, generally speaking, in Paul's letters, if it's a doctrinal issue, he takes sides. He doesn't leave it up for debate. He will weigh in on the argument. And he will usually either put, say, no, you're wrong, or both of you are wrong, and this is the truth here when we're talking about Christ and the gospel. He's always very clear about that. But most, so most likely that's not what, not most likely, that is not what is happening here. This is not a doctrinal debate or issue between these two women. So then the question for us is, what does it mean for these ladies and, and honestly for us to agree in the Lord? Now, if you've been here over the summer, you'll remember that Paul answered that question back in chapter 2 in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, you should have the mind of Christ, or depending on the version or translation you're using, it says you should have the same attitude as Jesus. And what is the attitude of Jesus? I'm going to read it to you, chapter, five, or chapter 2, verse, verses 5 and, or 6 and following. Just says, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, so that we could have abundant life. So Paul calls these two women to humble themselves and self-sacrifice by agreeing in the Lord. He's saying, submit to one another, put aside your differences. For the sake of your sister. Put aside your differences for the sake of this body of believers. Put aside your differences for your, the sake of your own ministry. Notice that Paul also understands the difficulty and the danger before this church. In some ways, this church stands on a precipice. It's being buffeted by persecution from outside, and it's being torn apart by disagreement and conflict from within. The church is close to losing its effectiveness, that is, for being salt and light in its community, simply because men and women aren't living in peace with one another. They're not imitating the attitude of Christ in their own personal relationships. Paul knows that th this issue is serious enough. It's a big enough issue. It's a huge issue. Not only does he mention the, these women, so we know it's a big issue, but he also says, look, this issue is so big and such a problem, I'm not going to leave it up to just to you two women to fix this problem. I'm going to call in a mediator. I'm going to call in a, a, a peacemaker to help you rectify this situation, to help this church come to a place of peace within your relationships. 
as we think about how to apply this to our lives, let me suggest a few things. Today we might call this Conflict Resolution 101, right? Conflict Resolution 101. That's the word we would use today with what's going on here in this church in Philippi. Conflict is part of life, um, living in a fallen world. Now, I hate saying that, and you can ask my wife, because I, I hate conflict. I don't enjoy it. Um, I don't think anyone does, but some people are better at it than others. But when I'm faced with conflict, you know what I do? I zip it. I don't say anything. I run away from it. I don't like it. Um, but that's not, the, that's not the answer we're looking for, and that's not the answer that Paul gives to these women. He says, degree in the Lord. Look, conflict is part of living in a fallen world. We either deal with it or we let it fester until it becomes not just a problem for me or you, but it becomes a problem for all of us. And this is what had happened with these two women. It started out as a conflict between them, but then it grew into a larger conflict within the church as people took sides, as people are apt to do. Look, conflicts will arise in our homes, with our neighbors, in our workplaces, and certainly even, sadly, but even so in our churches because we are sinful human beings learning what it means to practice the attitude of Christ in our relationships. We shouldn't be surprised by conflict, nor should we expect it, and, and we most certainly should not ignore it. Some, maybe even much of our conflicts, within the church at least, are not around doctrinal issues, but rather around areas of personal preference. You know, we've all heard the funny but sad stories of churches splitting or dividing over issues like what type of music to have in worship, what kinds of carpet to put in a sanctuary, or whether masks are optional or required. Too often we are quick to set up our preferences as dogma and refuse to participate with other believers, or worse yet, to leave the church simply because we disagree over debatable issues, over debatable matters. Now, because again, we're not talking about the gospel. We're not talking even about theology here. We're talking about issues of personal preference, what one likes over another, where the scripture gives us a great deal of latitude. And in the context that we live today, in the context we're in, in our American Western context, we don't do well working together. We don't do well submitting to one another. We're too quick, brothers and sisters, we're too quick to walk out the door because someone says we have to wear a mask. Or someone says you don't have to wear a mask. We're too quick to divide over personal issues of preference rather than staying united around the center point of Christ and the gospel. Church, if we hold our preferences up as the standards for all others to agree, we will inevitably have conflict. You can promise yourself that. If your standard, your personal preference becomes the standard, and that everyone else must agree with it, guess what? That's not going to happen. And we shouldn't be asking somebody to agree with every preference we have. We should learn to model the attitude of Christ and submit to one another out of love, out of self-sacrifice for the sake of the body of Christ. Paul's exhortation is for us to walk and live in harmony and humility and self-sacrifice, putting others before ourselves. Look, relational peace can be had if we will adopt the attitude of Christ. 
in our relationships with one another. Brothers and sisters, only as we learn to live in humility and self-sacrifice, not always getting what we want, will our church thrive and our community be blessed through our unity as the gospel is preached. Now look, I am, I'm no fool standing up here. I understand that what Jesus is asking us in, in chapter 2, what I'm preaching on now, isn't easy. I understand that. We're sinful human creatures made in the image of God, and yet Jesus is still calling us to submit ourselves to one another in areas of personal preference. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, whether it's in your marriage at home or here in this community, that we grow in this area of looking for peace out of concern and love for your brother or your sister or your wife, because that's what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. That's what Paul is exhorting us to in this passage. You know, there's also another side of this coin that I want to touch on briefly. I actually read this in a Legan Duncan sermon uh, last week or a week or two weeks ago, and he's talking about the importance of the grace of God in our conflicts. He says that conflict gives us an opportunity to demonstrate forgiveness and forbearance with one another. So I want you to hear what Legan says. He says, every estrangement that exists in a church is not simply something that burdens God's heart that he longs to see corrected. And this is important here. But it's an opportunity for gospel forgiveness to be shown. You can't show the gospel, sorry, you can't show the gospel grace of forbearing a wrong against you and forgiving a brother or sister who has wounded you until they've wounded you, until they've wronged you. That is precisely the occasion in which the power of God's gospel grace can be most gloriously manifested in your life. And the Apostle Paul is saying at the very outset, be reconciled, be at peace with one another. And we're to make it a priority, church, to work for these kinds of reconciliation, for this kind of reconciliation within this particular body. We are to work for this kind of relational peace through bearing with and forgiving one another, not dividing into parties, not dividing into cliques, not taking sides. The second area Paul leads us to look at is personal peace. In verses 4 through 7, he gives us three exhortations and one promise. He exhorts us, now I'm reading from the ESV, and so I apologize, we got our transla translations mixed up, so you have in front of you the NIV, so it's not going to match up totally, and that's okay. But Paul exhorts us to rejoice. He exhorts us to gentleness or kindness or reasonableness, depending on the translation you're using. And lastly, he exhorts us not to worry. Don't be anxious, he says. And he ends this section, the second part of this section, with a promise that we will have the peace of God, meaning a personal peace that only comes through God. He starts this section with rejoice. And he says it twice as if to remind the Philippian believers that even during their personal struggles and their division, that they are still called to rejoice. And why is that? And hopefully you've seen that over the summer. The reason for that is because we are not to live as if our joy is dependent upon our circumstances. Paul, throughout this letter, has unequivocally shown that our joy comes from, comes from Christ, not from our situations in life. 
Rather, our joy comes from Jesus himself, from being united to him in faith and knowing that nothing can take that away from us. The love of Christ is for his people, is for his people. We get to experience that daily. That's where our joy is. That's where our joy should come from. Not not because I'm struggling with a hard day, therefore I can't have joy. Now, I'm not saying some of us are going to struggle, some of us are going to lack joy, and that's okay, but Paul is reminding us here that your joy needs to be centered in Christ, who he is and what he's done for you, what he's done for us. And he says this because the Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near, and, uh, and that is also saying that because the Lord is at hand, he is soon to return. He is soon to return for his church, for his body. Paul then goes on and says, because the Lord is at hand, or that the Lord is near, he is in control. Do not worry. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, I'm going to date myself again here. I keep doing this in the pulpit. But um, maybe you know this song by Bobby McFerrin in 1988, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I would ask you to raise your hands, but that'd probably just make me feel even older than I am. So it's a great song. Um, it was very popular. It has a wonderful tune. And I'm going to read you some of the lyrics from this song. I promise not to sing it because, like I've said before, you value your ears. You don't want to hear me sing. So here's some of the lyrics. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. In every life we have some trouble. But when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry, be happy. The landlord say your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry, be happy. Look at me, I'm happy. And the song goes on. It's a great little tune, catchy tune, a wonderful tune. But my fear is most of us approach life or approach at least our anxiety and our worry with a similar kind of mindset. We think of, oh, Paul is calling us here to not to worry, just to be happy. But let me make that clear. That is not what Paul is saying here. He doesn't say, don't worry, just be happy. Turn that frown upside down. No. What does he say? What does he say here? He says, don't worry, pray instead. Did you see that? Don't be anxious pray. The God of heaven and earth, your creator and sustainer, knows your every need. So, do we, so you don't have to worry. So you don't have to be anxious. Now look, these believers in Philippi had every reason to be anxious, to be worried, right? They're being persecuted. They're being treated poorly. And on top of that, there's conflicts, conflict in this church. They're in a very difficult situation, and yet Paul still says to them, don't be anxious, don't worry. Instead, lift your request to God with thanksgiving. As Christians, we do not need to worry because the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near. And, Paul, and Paul's exhortation for us is, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The way we are to struggle against anxiety and stress is prayer. That's what Paul is saying here. If you're struggling with anxiety, then you should be. And this isn't the only reason. But if you're struggling with anxiety and worry, you should be a person of prayer. Too often our struggle comes because we refuse or are too lazy to go to the Father with prayer and supplication for our anxious hearts and minds. You know, many of you like to jog or 
to exercise, whether that's CrossFit or simply going to the gym, working out. And you do it because it's good for you. Um, it makes you feel good. You do it because it also, you get the release of these endorphins and, and that feels good. But exercise takes time. It takes effort. It takes commitment on our parts in order to see results. Paul is saying the same thing here with prayer. Prayer takes time. It takes effort and commitment to see results. If you're struggling with anxiety, fear, or worry, then commit yourself to prayer. Trusting that God will see, will ease your burdens, your worries, and your fears as you call out to him. Now, I want to say one more thing. It's a little bit of a thing, but one thing more on anxiety. Um, because I don't want, let me, just one more thing on anxiety. So please hear me. That some anxiety is medically related. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I am a nurse. And I just want to say some anxiety is medically related. We live in one of the most anxious times in history with both millennials and Gen Z struggling deeply with anxiety. This is not just a spiritual issue for some people. And I want you to hear this. This is not just a spiritual issue for some people. It's a biological, psychological issue. We live in a fallen world, and we are fallen creatures who face all kinds of physical and mental issues because of the fall, because of the effects of the fall. Some of you may be struggling with deep anxiety today, and you shouldn't hear me, nor should you hear Paul saying, well, just pray more and it'll go away. That's not what I'm saying, and that is certainly not what Paul is saying. In fact, if you're struggling with anxiety, you may need to see a doctor, and I would encourage you to do so. However, some of us are here who just have normal anxiety, the struggles with life themselves, and we're struggling with just uh, trying to live life, and we're feeling a little overwhelmed now and then with anxieties and worry. And often, our anxiety and worry comes out of a desire to be in control. And so we worry a little bit more, we feel a little bit more anxious in order to, in hopes to have a little more control. Now, of course, the problem with worry and anxiety is no matter how much you worry, your problem doesn't really change. The solution to help us with our worries and our anxiety is to pray and remember what Jesus taught in Matthew 6. This is what he says. Don't worry about living, wondering what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Surely life is more important than food, and the body more important than clothes, than the clothes you wear. Look at the birds in the sky, they never sow, nor reap, nor store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable to him than they are? Look, brothers and sisters, your heavenly Father knows you and loves you, and he'll provide for you. So go to your Father in prayer with thanksgiving, and thank him for the grace, for his grace in your life. Thank him for being with you and bringing you through not just the difficult times, but also thank him for bringing you through the good times. And here's the beauty of Paul's teaching here, church. Paul doesn't say, wait until you get your anxiety or worry under control. No, he says, come to the Father in prayer. And as we make our requests known to our faithful God, he will bring peace through praying. Now, Hear what I'm saying. Maybe he answers your prayer or not, but simply praying and meeting with the lover of your soul, the God who loves your soul deeply, may calm your worries and give you peace. That's what Paul is calling us to. Paul ends this, with this wonderful promise 
that the wonderful promise for the peace of God. And he says that the peace that we long for and desire in life, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace that will protect our hearts and minds is a military term picturing God's peace as a detachment of soldiers standing guard over our thoughts and feelings. David Strain, a pastor, put it like this. Jesus deploys his forces of grace to protect the battlefields of our hearts and minds from the assaults of anxiety, unbelief, and despair. This is the peace our Savior gave to us. Remember, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Because the peace of God is ours in Christ. And the peace we receive from him will help us to stand up when anxiety and fears buffet our body and our minds. That's the peace we're called to. That's the peace we should be seeking after. Peace that only God himself through Christ can give us. Lastly, Paul tells us in verses 8 and 9 to seek, a world, to seek worldly peace. And by that I mean a peace with the wider world, right? Paul tells us elsewhere in Scripture that as far as, as, far as it is with us, we should live at peace with all people. He says in verses 8 and 9, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be, will, will be with you. Paul closes this section with a list of exhortations that we are to think on. He tells us we're to think on these, we're to meditate on them, we're to deeply think upon them. He writes these virtues in such a way that he's basically saying that whenever we see these things, whenever we see something that's commendable or honorable, honorable or excellent, that we're to think on it, that we're to spend time thinking on it. Now, Paul is talking about the world out here. He's also talking about the very word of God itself. So it's important to remember we live in a world, and listen to what Paul's saying. He's saying wherever you find something good, something beautiful, something honorable, think about that thing. He's not saying, oh, I can only find that in Christian movies and Christian TV and Christian books. He's saying in all of creation, I've given you all of creation. Look for these things in creation itself and then also in the scriptures. What Paul is teaching us here is something called common grace. He's given us a glimpse of common grace here. And what I mean by this is that even in a fallen world, there still exist undeserved blessings that every person receives from God. Things like rain or health or happiness, gifts, prosperity, as well as non-believers committing acts that are in some way good. And, but Paul is saying all these things flow from the hand of God to unbelievers and believers all experience God's goodness in one, on one level. And Paul is saying, when you see something that is commendable, something that is honorable, something that is pure, think about these things deeply. Make them part of who you are. Change your desires. And the reason he's telling us this is because he wants us to live the Christian life in such a way that these things overwhelm our hearts, that these things overwhelm our minds, and they push out the things that are not commendable, the things that are not pure, the things that are not lovely. They push those things out because we're filling our heads and our minds and our hearts with the truth 
of all that is beautiful that God has created in this world. And now I'm really, really again off my notes here. But look, as we are exhorted to meditate on these virtues, Paul wants us to grow in godly desires so that we can replace all these base or these trivial or even sometimes these crude thoughts that we might have. He's saying, if you will focus on these things, you will develop these desires, they will push out, they will help you push out those bad desires, those things that are going to lead you away from Christ. So focus on the things wherever you see them. Focus on them. Make them part of who you are. Of course, these virtues are best exemplified in God, that is more specifically in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, as we think on these things and practice them, then we will experience not just the peace of God, but the God of peace. Here's the thing. Because we serve and know the God of peace, we should also be a people of peace. Why is that? Because the God of peace, the Prince of peace, the one who came to bring peace, also calls us to live at peace as a church, with, as a church with our unbelieving neighbors. He's the God of peace, and he is calling you and me to peace uh, with those who are even outside of our faith, to live in peace as far as possible, as far as we, is, we are concerned, with our unbelieving neighbors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for grace and mercy. We are often fearful and worried about the cares of this world. We struggle with anxiety and worry because we lack faith to believe that you reign and are in control of every situation and circumstance that life throws our way. God, let us be a people of peace, a people who are confident because you are at hand. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.